So a priest and a rabbi were standing by the side of the road holding up two signs. Yeah, I'm starting here. (laughs) The rabbi sign read, The end is near. The priest held up a sign which read, Turn before it's too late. And they planned to hold up their signs to every passing car. The first car comes and the driver yells, I'll get a job. The second driver, immediately after the first, yells, leave us alone, you religious freaks. Moments later, around the curve, the priest and the rabbi hear screeching tires and a splash, followed by more screeching tires and yet another splash. Rabbi looks over to his companion and he says, do you think we should try a different sign? The priest responded, well, maybe bridge out would have been a better sign. (laughs) Terrible, terrible. Sometimes I can't help myself. Well, as, as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've come across several signs that Solomon has shown us to warn us of the pitfalls of this life under the sun. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's warning to us is about the vanity of life, of getting caught up and distracted by what this world has to offer instead of focusing on our true goal, which is Jesus Christ himself. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, as Solomon refers to himself, is concerned with believers learning to fear God in a fallen, confused, and messed up world. And he often returns to the phrase, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Every pursuit in this world, whether it's wisdom, pleasure, work, money, honor, companionship, all of these pursuits are absolute foolishness when compared to the pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ. Now, this fact should cause the Christian to take refuge in the shelter of God, in the truth of His Word, and in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even though we look around and we see chaos in our world, we see a broken, messy, sin-filled world. Our hope and trust is in the truth that God will fulfill all of his purposes for his people by redeeming, renewing, and restoring all that has been broken at the fall. So this morning, we're going to continue to unpack the wisdom that Solomon has to offer for us. And I pray that these verses will help us stay focused on the goal, the upward prize of knowing Christ so that we might be reminded that all is not lost that this world is not beyond redemption and that as we struggle to make our way through this life and deal with our own sinfulness that we remember that we have the promise of the gospel that Jesus himself made the way for us to have eternal life with him. Amen. So let's jump into verses 21 and 22 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And Solomon's going to begin with a really practical reminder for us. 
He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you, because you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, when I was in junior high, the thing we said on the, on the schoolyard to counter a bully's unkind words was, sticks and stones may break my bones, but amen. Words may never hurt me. It's not really a true statement, is it? Right? Because the words actually do hurt. And, you know, we think, oh, you know, no big deal. But Solomon, in verse 21 and 22, is actually telling us the very same thing. The wounds caused by sticks and stones will eventually heal. But many of us have experienced times when we thought that the wounds caused by someone else's words would never heal. Because words carry exceptional weight. And too often we have seen the harm that the tongue can inflict. It's amazing though that an organ created for so much beauty and good can do so much damage and cause so much heartache. And in my own pastoral ministry, I have been grieved and shocked by those who have harmed myself or others with their words. And I've been grieved by my own words that have hurt and damaged others. And maybe you've had similar experiences with Christians. And those times hurt, don't they? Because sooner or later, you or I are going to hear somebody say something unkind or untrue about you. And usually, our first reaction is what? Anger. At least that's my first reaction, typically. But Solomon is giving us some really beautiful practical words here. And he's reminding us to just let it go. Realizing that you were never intended to hear that statement in the first place. And maybe that statement was spoken in a moment of weakness or misjudgment. I actually think Charles Spurgeon summed up this passage, these few verses, in in an amazing way. He says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For you are much worse than he thinks you to be. Absolutely true. Hard, hard words, but true nonetheless. And Jesus actually sums up verse 22 during his Sermon on the Mount. He tells us in Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, some of you might ask, well, what about the offense of the words that carried so much damage and weight? What do I do with that? How can, how can we cope with hurtful things that people have said about us? And Solomon's advice His command here is is to be wise and not listen to the gossip. To let it slide off your back. 
Because you know in your heart that you have said just as many unkind things. And let's be honest. When we get upset that people have said hurtful things about us, we're really holding them to a higher standard than we're holding ourselves to. Because how many times have we said hurtful and unkind things about another? A lot. With that said, sometimes a rebuke is necessary when someone says something unkind. Especially if the comments are specifically uh, divisive. We need to be prepared to lovingly drill our brother or sister between the eyes and say, don't talk about my friend like that. Now, the reason that gossip and slander continue to go on in most churches is that Christians tolerate it. We tolerate gossip and slander like it's not that big of a deal. And one lesson I pray that every Christian would learn is that we would learn to stand up for others and sit down for ourselves. To not be offended when someone's talking about you, but to protect a brother or sister that someone else is talking about. Let it go and defend. But you've got to get those in the right order. If we ignore the painful things that others say about us and we learn to take them with a grain of salt, we can instead put our time and our energy into putting others first. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May that be our goal, brother and sister, that we would not be so easily offended when someone says something hurtful about us, but that we'd go to bat when someone says something else unkind about someone else. Amen? Well, let's look at verses 23 through 25. He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And in verse 23 through 25, he's giving us his goal of resolving to be a wise man. He wanted to pursue wisdom on his own. But the more wisdom that he attained, the more he realized that wisdom was something he couldn't attain on his own. His pursuit of earthly wisdom brought him to the discovery that he was unable to discover wisdom by himself. Because the depths and riches of the wisdom of God are unattainable. Paul said it like this in Romans eleven thirty three. He said, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments 
and how inscrutable His ways. God is beyond comprehension. God's wisdom is not for us to attain. Now, some folks have tried to figure out how to attain wisdom in their own way. And one American comedian gave us this little tidbit. He said, it's so simple to be wise. Just think of something stupid to say and then don't say it. It's good advice, right? Now, at this point, though, we have two choices. One is to give up completely and throw in the towel and say, wisdom is not attainable, so I will be a fool. Or the second choice is for us to admit that we do not have to have all the answers. Let me say that again, church. This is hard for some of us. Sometimes we need to stop and admit that we do not have to have all the answers. But instead, we must believe that God himself does. Because that allows us to trust and wait for whatever wisdom he wants to provide. This is the way of humility and faith. What John Calvin once called a learned ignorance. We should try as hard as we can to understand the meaning of life, to seek after wisdom and truth. But we should also be content to confess that there are some mysteries that we will never understand. Augustine once said this, he said, God does not expect us to submit our faith to him without reason, but the very limits of our reason make faith a necessity. Knowing the limits of wisdom is part of having wisdom. Because the more we know, the more we realize how little we know. And that was Solomon's discovery. As he gained wisdom, he realized how little wisdom he actually had. Whatever wisdom that we are given, we need to say is simply a gift from God. That the Holy Spirit is giving us something precious. He is making known to us the mystery that God has kept from us previously. This is actually plainly seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 12, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Holy Spirit's, one of his jobs is to enlighten us, to show us the things that we had no knowledge of beforehand. And it's arrogant for us to say as believers, oh, I figured that out on my own. No, you didn't. It pleased God to reveal it to you through the Holy Spirit. And it's a precious gift. And we should be thanking the Holy Spirit for that gift continually. Now let's look at verses 26 through 28. It's going to get a little more difficult here. That's where I started to struggle. <laughs> and I find something more bitter than death. It's an interesting start. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. 
He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another, to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Don't pick up any rocks, ladies. I'll explain. Hold on. I will say, when I first read this passage, I was like, really? Oh, man. That's what Tim said, sorry, after this, when I read those verses. Now, there is some mystery surrounding the identity of this woman. And some understand this woman to be a prostitute or an adulterer. And so then the application would simply be for us to just avoid sexual sin. That's probably not the best interpretation. If you're reading it that way, it's okay, but not great. I believe that though wisdom is actually, I'm sorry, I believe that the woman is actually the personification of the wickedness, which is folly itself. Much in the same way that Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman in the book of Proverbs. The predecessor of the woman in verse 25 is folly. And this conclusion seems to be substantiated by the mention of the tactics of folly who tries to lure people away from wisdom's embrace back in verse 26. So the point is this, that foolishness is like a seductive woman. If you pursue foolishness, it will lead to your demise. So be like a wise person and refuse to be captured by her. Now the man Solomon is referring to in verse 28, I actually believe that this is Jesus. Because he makes this statement, he makes this statement and he says that a One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. And he's talking about someone who is wise and righteous. And I don't know about you, but I haven't met many men that are wise and righteous. There's only one man that fulfills that category, and his name is Jesus. And I think really what Solomon is doing here is he's making this parallel reference to the foolishness of humanity pursuing after their own wisdom and the Christ man who is perfect and righteous and holy and pure and that he is the only one because no one can please God on their own. Now we try. We try to please God on our own. We say we're going to keep the commandments. We're going to follow the law. We're going to do good things and be good people. But it doesn't work when we have sinful hearts. So how do we, as believers, please God? The psalmist tells us in Psalm 53, verse 2 and 3, that God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And he says they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. 
There is none who does good, not even one. If you think you're sitting here today and you call yourself a good person, sorry to burst your bubble. You're not. Neither am I. The, the writer of Hebrews tells us something really interesting in, in Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God equips us by working in us that which pleases him. God does not equip us by giving us skills or equipment to go work for him. Rather, he equips us by taking residence in our hearts and himself working his will in and through us. And not only that, but he takes pleasure in what he does in us. The work that pleases God. If you want to please God, it's allowing the work of God to work through you. Paul says this in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, some of you might have memorized verse 12. And I would tell you, if you've done that without memorizing 13, that you missed it. Because verse 12 and verse 13 of Philippians chapter 2 are connected. Listen to what he says. It's not work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's where we stop. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who is working out your salvation with fear and trembling? God is. That's why he left us the Holy Spirit. So you didn't have to do it on your own. Because left to our own devices, we don't go the way of the Lord. We go our own way. The way of sin. The way of unrighteousness. And that's why in verse 29, Solomon ends with this. He says, see this alone I found, that God made man upright. But they have sought out many schemes. We're schemers. All, every one of us. There was a story of a man who was sitting at a clubhouse after a golf game. His name was Bob, and he said to this fellow club member, I'm never going to play golf with Jim again anymore. Not one more time. He cheats. His friend asked, well, what, why do you say that? Well, we were out there, and he found his lost ball just two feet from the green. The guy says, well, what, what's the problem with that? It seems possible. He says, not when I had the ball in my pocket. We love to scheme to make our own devices, to find our own way. And that's part of our human nature as sin-filled humans. 
And in verse 29, Solomon asserts two different truths from the book of Genesis. The first truth is that initially, all of God's creation was good. God finished creating it and he said, it is good. When he finished making man, he said, it is very good. But the second truth from Genesis is that every human will turn from God's will to our own will at every opportunity that we can. We love to pursue our sin. And sometimes we look at Adam and Eve and we're like, really? You blew it. You and I wouldn't have done any different. We might have done it worse. Because as humans, we love to do it our own way. And I I always remember the, the words of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? And that's all it took. It's all it took for them to turn away from what God had commanded. Just a question of doubt. That's it. And even though we, as Christians, often try to seek after righteousness, we need to remember that no matter how good we think we've become, we will always struggle with our sin nature. At least until that day when the Lord gives us a new body and a new nature. That day where sin will be no more and Christ's righteousness will be ours forever. And that day can't come soon enough, right? So who is responsible for humanity's universal failure to please God? Solomon is reminding us here that it's us and not God. It's not God's fault that we're sinners. It's our fault. God made us upright. He made us righteous. And now, even in our fallenness, He has given us the righteousness of Christ. We have done absolutely nothing to earn it. Nothing to bring it about. And yet God has given us this righteousness because of what Jesus did on Calvary. And even with that, despite that amazing grace that's been lavished upon us, so many of us still try to find our own way to attain righteousness, our own path to salvation. And we try to pursue it through our many schemes, as Solomon says. Even though we try our own ways to deal with sin, Solomon is reminding us about God's plan of salvation. And it's something we need to remind ourselves of often. Paul wrote it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Without Jesus, it is impossible for you or I to live a righteous, upright life. It is impossible for you or I to please God. And our sin must be dealt with. And Jesus was the only person who could deal with it. Verse 29 is really an honest confession about our failure to live in the authentic way that we desire when we pursue righteousness of any kind other than Christ. If you want good character, the reality of it is that it's far off. Wisdom shows the distance between humanity and righteousness. And Solomon struggled with this fact. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he pursues one path after another, after another, after another. And in the end, every time he says, all of it is vanity, a chasing after the wind. It is getting me nowhere. Those who don't know Christ are trusting in some scheme or another scheme to save them. Or else they're ignoring their need for a savior and believing in their own goodness. God made us in his image. We were not created to be sinful. But sin entered into our world because of mankind's desire to turn away from God through our many schemes. And rejecting God's plan of salvation for our lives and desiring our own devices is foolishness and vanity. It's seeking after something that can never save us from our sin because Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. He's not a way. He's the only way. And sin is our fault. We've got to stop blaming others for the sin in our own hearts. But the beautiful thing is that in Jesus, that sin doesn't have to be our reality. You can have peace, freedom, reconciliation, hope, and ultimately Christ himself. Christians don't find meaning in their lives because of their own wisdom or their own righteousness or in believing that our sin doesn't have any eternal consequences. A Christian's life has meaning in Jesus Christ alone. And the wisdom that Solomon has shared with us this morning has pointed us to that reality. You and I can try to make up our own plans. We can try and go our own way. But apart from Christ, all of these pursuits are vanity. A chasing after the wind. Our lives make sense with Christ. And our lives have purpose with Christ. And the hope that we have in Jesus helps us look out at this world, at this messed up, sin-filled world, and not live in despair, but live as people of hope.
because we know this isn't the end. That the plan is just unfolding even now. And we get to long and wait for the day that our Christ will return and bring us to be with him in righteousness. Amen? Let's pray, church. Lord Jesus, we confess today that we often try to make a way without you. That we often seek our own plan of salvation outside of the work that you did on Calvary. Lord, we often, we often pursue things that we think will gain us points with you. And we think that our own goodness will, will help us. And yet, Lord, this morning you've shown us that all of that is, is foolishness. Lord, that without you we have absolutely nothing. Because you are all that we need. And Lord, we look around at this world and we see it's sin abundant. We see it everywhere. And more than that, we see people pursuing ways in which they are trying to redeem themselves, Lord, that don't include you. And Lord, you have told us to be the mouthpiece so that those would know that you are the truth. Lord, so I just want to say this morning that, that we, please give us boldness and courage to be a people who speak your truth to those who are trying to make their way without you. May we not hold back. May we not give in. May we speak that truth in love as vessels of your glory. Use us for your kingdom, we pray. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.